Before the episode begins, I'd like to tell you about the Science for Care podcast. Science for Care is an audio series produced by HealthTech for Care, an endowment fund committed to support and promote access to care for all patients. Each episode takes a concise look at some of the major advances in medicine, mRNA vaccines, antibiotics, gene therapy, the metaverse, and many more. The production is meticulous, the narration captivating, and the guests are true leaders in their respective fields. If you listen to Impulse, then you'll be for sure interested, so don't wait any longer and go listen to the first two seasons of Science for Care. Organoids can be and are the most promising platforms for, for personalized medicine. Our mission is to solve the biological limitations of organoids that are required in order for them to make this leap from, from the academic lab into the you know, drug development lab and then finally into the clinic ideally. For something that was always driving me um, with bioengineering background was the biological problem at hand rather than the technology. Welcome to Impulse, the podcast where you will meet the person shaping the current medical advancements and pushing the boundaries of what is currently achievable in healthcare. Be they researchers, doctors, engineers, or entrepreneurs, who will explore through in-depth conversations their field of expertise, as well as the journey that took them where they are now. A brief disclaimer before the episode starts. Nicole Shea and I both work for Roche. Nevertheless, all opinions expressed in this episode are our own and do not necessarily represent the position of our employer. All right, so good morning, Nikos. It's a, it's a pleasure to be with you this morning here in Basel. Um, it's actually been a bit more than five years since we last saw each other. At the time, I was doing my master's degree in biomedical engineering at EPFL, and you were giving a lecture on tissue engineering for a course exactly on that topic, and for the anecdote, I have a very clear memory of the exam for that course, which I followed with a very good friend of mine, uh, Jeremy. Greetings to him. And we had prepared ourselves like crazy ahead of the exam, thinking that we would not be allowed to consult any you know, resource or reference during it. And we literally learned like at the start of the exam that it was open book. And yeah, so luckily everything went well for both of us. But, and we can, we can have a laugh about it today, but that's why I remember it quite clearly. Um, so anecdotes aside, you are leading the organoid engineering team at the Institute for Translational Bioengineering at Roche, which was recently established within the company and is being led by Professor Matthias Lutolf, a leading figure in the field of tissue engineering research. So we are going to talk about tissue engineering more specifically, specifically about organoids and the technology around those and what they are. I'm really curious to learn about the research you are conducting here in this regard, the applications around organoids for the purpose of drug discovery, what they can bring in terms of personalized treatment for patients, uh, and your long-term vision as to which clinical applications they may lead to in the future. Um, one point that I would also like to touch on is the transition that you guys performed uh, moving from the academic world to the industry in the leading companies such as Roche and how that affected the way you're working and, and the challenges you face. Um, but before we tackle all these subjects in more depth, um, would you like to, to present yourself? Yes, of course. Uh, hello, Matthew. Um, nice to see you again after five years. <laughs> Thank you for uh, 
the invitation to have this chat. Uh, it's nice to be here on the 26th floor of Building One in Basel, even though it's a bit of a foggy, hazy day, but the view is nevertheless fantastic. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, so you are leading the, the Organoid <coughs> Engineering team um, at the ITB uh, at Roche. Could you explain us what is uh, the mission of this newly established institute and, and the mandate of your team in particular? Yes, absolutely. So the the mandate of the and the and the mission of the ITB, uh, let's call it ITB for short, is to implement human model systems, and let's I, I might refer them to also to them as HMS, and let's establish the the definition as to what they are before yeah. <laughs> <laughs> before I go into application. So the so HMS human model systems, they are essentially replicas of human tissues and organs. Okay. Um, that this is what this is what the what the word per pertains to and the ambition is to it's and it's replicas of tissues and organs that we build in the lab typically starting from stem cells but not only and the ambition is to apply them to drug development to drug development and also to drug application in clinical practice and um that comes following a tradition of drug development that was based on either animal models or other types of in vitro models, such as uh, you know cell lines, mm -hmm. and you know we have a concrete set of reasons as to why we think this is the next step. And in order for, to make this happen, you need kind of a combined approach that encompasses biology, technology, logistics, and when these efforts are splintered between different departments, functions, it's a little bit inefficient. So the idea behind ITB was to consolidate these efforts and the expertise, bringing new expertise, which was also which was potentially not present at, at Roche or any yeah. big pharma company, in order to make this happen. Mm -hmm. So that's the that's the overall ITB mission. And then within ITB, I lead the organ and engineering group. Um, our mission is to solve the biological limitations of organoids that are required in order for them to make this leap from a, from the academic lab into the you know drug development lab and then finally into the clinic ideally because you know they're fantastic they have a lot of benefits which is why we're interested in them but they also suffer some limitations and they range from technical to logistical to biological mm -hmm. so the the idea is to solve to solve them before we're able to apply them meaningfully for the benefit of patients and um, so can you tell us more about what those organoids are, just to make it clear for the listeners maybe who have not come across the, the concept? Yes, of course. So organoids, uh, I, I think the name is kind of funny because it conjures these uh, concepts that you you know might see, you might hear in Blade Runner, it's a bit sci-fi. Um, it's the what the organoid what what the name implies is a small organ, right? An organoid or something that pertains or something that relates to an organ, and I think that to a large extent is true. So they are these three dimensional structures that originate largely from stem cells, yeah, or are often derived from primary patient samples, from primary human tissue samples, that recapitulate aspects of the cellular diversity, the um, architecture, so the how yeah. what cell types are present, how they're organized into a three-dimensional structure, but also aspects of function, right? Okay, and um, what types of tissues have been have like actually an an organoid homologue, like any any type of tissue virtually, or so far? Yeah, it's a good question. Actually, any type of tissue that contains stem cells, 
in theory, would be able to be cast into an in vitro organoid. And we can go into a little bit of a discussion as to which of the adult tissues still contain stem cells. Actually, most of them do, virtually all of them do, because they all possess some sort of a regeneration potential upon damage. And we can leverage this fact, and we can leverage the fact that there are stem cells present to then take them out and recapitulate this process of regeneration, tissue formation in vitro. And this is how we get organoids. Now, um, that's one way to get organoids is from adult stem cells, right? The the stem cells that we have in our tissue. Bone marrow, for example. (laughs) Yes. But another, um, you know, very, very strong um, and, and very interesting approach to creating organoids is via embryonic stem cells or induced pluripotent stem cells. Yeah. Can you explain what these induced yes. pluripotent stem cells are? So these are, these are, um, so embryonic stem cells, they're basically the building blocks of our body, yeah. which are present during our early stage, d- during um, our early embryonic development, mm-hmm. right? So they are, um, they're called stem cells because they have the potential to differentiate into virtually any cell type of our body any functional adult cell type. And the earlier we go into development, into embryonic development, the higher the potential would be and the wider the repertoire of of differentiated cells that these these cells can can form. So just imagine if we take ES cells, knowing what they do in vivo, knowing Mm -hmm. what they do during development, that they recreate every tissue and organ, it stands to reason that this would also be able to recreate any tissue and organ in vitro. We just have to find the right approaches to coax them into doing that, right? And that's, for some tissues and organs, we know them. For some tissues and organs, we know them really well. For some, we know them less well. But so that's why I would say we have different rates of success in forming organoids for for different organ and tissue counterparts. Mm -hmm. But to some extent, we can we can recapitulate every organ, okay, in an organoid, and and the way uh, these induced pluripotent stem cells that you mentioned are made, um, can you, in simple terms, explain us how that works? How you reprogram the cell fate? Yes. yes. So the so I touched I touched on the embryonic stem cells. Uh, you can get something that is very similar to the embryonic stem cell state without actually deriving it from the embryo, but actually deriving taking cells from an adult individual, any any adult cell type, skin, fibroblast, mm-hmm. actually whatever, even blood cells. Yeah. And you reprogram them genetically by introducing this transcript trans, a set of transcription factors that pertain to uh, so-called pluripotency that yeah. revert the, the the cell back to its original embryonic state. So they kind of do two things. They confer pluripotency, but they also suppress differentiation programs, right? So it becomes kind of naive. It becomes, um, yeah, pluripotent, just being able to produce any uh, mature cell type of the body. And so this is the the starting point of an organoid. And once we... No, once we, uh, we have that, like, what's the, like, the organoids get formed by themselves. What's the how? What's the process to what's grow the them? Actually, yeah. yeah, that's a very that's a very good question because you're completely right that we need the the starting material are the stem cells, mm-hmm. and they have this organoid or tissue genic tissue forming mm-hmm. potential. However, in order in order for it to be triggered and to be triggered appropriately, you also need 
not just their potential, not just what is encoded into the stem cells, but you also need the right environmental trigger triggers that in fact recapitulate the microenvironment, whether it's the soluble or physical microenvironment, which is either present during embryonic development or regeneration or homeostasis within our adult tissues and organs. So we need to give them, we need to supply them with this set of physical and chemical signals in order for them to start, you know, uh, reenacting this tissue formation process. Yeah, so it's not just like exposing them to a particular set of molecules and chemicals. It's more like the, the whole environment, the matrix in which you exactly. embed them needs to be designed in a way that favors yes. a certain orientation. Absolutely. And, okay. and typically, this uh, that is something that mimics their the native environment where this process would happen, the, the process of tissue and, and organ formation. So, yeah. And, and you touched on the fact that those could be derived from uh, from patients' biopsies. Uh, mm -hmm. In that case, do you just incubate a sample from that mm -hmm. biopsy, or you also need to go through that process where they are reprogrammed and then differentiated into? That's a very, that's a good question. So biopsies, there. Um, if you take a biopsy from an uh, from an adult tissue, the idea is that these cells would have already gone through these um, you know rounds of commitment of maturation. So you can still they still have some tissue formation potential, but it will be specific to the tissue to their tissue of origin. And in this case we're not really recapitulating developmental programs, but you're relying on regeneration programs because also every tissue when damaged, can regenerate and when you take a biopsy that's exactly what you do mm -hmm. right yeah you're damaging the tissue and then you rely on triggering regeneration programs in order to form a miniature version of this tissue which is the organoid so you don't need to do the reprogramming process unless you want to form a tissue which is different than the tissue of origin for this biopsy Does that make sense? Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. And so going back to the applications that where, where you use these these type of technology at the ITB, um, what type of tissues do you focus on and uh, and what are these applications at the moment? So I have to say that we are pretty much just starting. We started yeah. last year. <laughs> so the catalog of tissues and applications is, is going to grow. But we focused on something that I would say strikes a balance between the expertise Of, of the current ITB members and the needs of the portfolio. So we have a strong cancer focus. We do a lot yeah. of cancer modeling starting from organoids. Um, we have very strong programs on um, intestinal models in health, but also in disease, bearing in mind the IBD, inflammation, um, and COPD focus in, in the portfolio. And we also have a, um, a strong brain modeling focus That is, um, I mean, right now it's just nucleating. This is going to grow. But we have an interest in recapitulating the brain, you know, during development, during adulthood, mm -hmm. but also in the context of degeneration, which is behind most of these, you know, diseases that we're trying to address, treat Parkinson's, Alzheimer's. So these are the, these are the main, I would say, the core research directions that we have at the moment. But, uh, you know, anything, any major vital organ is of interest, because in addition to studying and addressing a disease in a particular organ that is a current portfolio focus, we also need to have most of the vital organs available in order to look at toxicities. You know, even if a yeah. drug is meant 
in terms of efficacy for a particular um, indication application, it still needs to be safe in all of the major vital organs. So yeah, yeah we need to have everything fairly well captured. And from my understanding, this is quite an established application, right? The testing effic the efficacy and safety of drugs on organoid models instead of relying on animal models for that. I I wouldn't say it's well it's well established actually. Okay, <laughs> I think it's um, it's been um, hypothesized um, and theorized for quite a lot because it's a it's a it's quite uh, obvious even you know mm -hmm. it's, it's the obvious application instead of using animals or instead of using somewhat artificial simplistic cell lines to use something which is more appropriate and recapitulate the physiological environment better. Now, in order for this to happen in a meaningful way, there's still some hurdles that need to be overcome. And, you know, I can just list a few of them, you know, maybe just to go back a few steps. Uh, organoids are very good academic technology. In order for them to be translated into a drug development technology, there, there needs some refinements need to happen, yeah. right? And when I said technical and logistical, that pertains to sourcing primary samples from patients, for example, yeah. to be able to grow organoids. So even the availability of organoids, it's pretty much at its impetus in, um, in within pharma. We have, I think, a fairly good biobank of intestinal organoid, and I. I uh, to a large extent, I think, owing to the work that I was doing in the, in my previous department in preclinical safety, but for everything else, we're even just building up the starting materials, so the organoids, making them available. Then it has to do, uh, then the, the second step is refining the biology. Organoids are great, and I said they are, asp they recapitulate aspects of, of organs. However, they're also missing important biology, which is important in general, but it also pertains to specific therapeutic directions that Roche is interested in leveraging, mm -hmm. in exploiting. Some of these things are missing. Let me give you one example. We have a portfolio which is very, very rich in immunomodulators. We have a very strong cancer immunotherapy department, yeah. which is actually targeting not really the, the, the um, cancer cells. The cancer cells will be the responders because you want to kill them. However, the drugs target the immune cells. They activate the immune cells, which then be the soldiers mm -hmm. who fight against cancer. But in most of the organoid models, you don't have immune competence. They actually yep. cannot mount an immune response. So we need to engineer that. That's one example of bi biological refinements that, that, we make to, that we need to do. And then third, it has to do with um, scale, reproducibility, yep. uh, robustness, automation, robotics. So a lot of really interesting engineering challenges that we're working on to be able to kind of democratize and scale the use of organoids in order to for them to be applied effectively. And so, so far it hasn't been uh, used in a clinical setting or has it been? Like uh, when I was preparing the episode, I came across a video from Professor Hans Clevers, who is leading uh, pharma research and early development now. And uh, he was giving the example of a kid suffering from cystic fibrosis yes. and they took a biopsy from from him, they were able to grow it in an organoid and test a certain drug so that it was uh, reacting well to it. And then they just, I mean, put the, the, the kid on the treatment and and he was cured. So that's like, to me, like a very concrete clinical application. I don't Absolutely. know. If... 
that's that's yeah that's great it's it's a this this one is a proof of concept which is very important for the field because it absolutely highlights how organoids could be used in a personalized fashion to find the best drug or the best combination of drugs ideally even at the right dose you know where you instead of trying out doses you would ideally inform yourself what would be the efficacious and safe dose before you dosing the patient um, sadly, that's the only clinical application we have so far. <laughs> it's <laughs> so a big the, one, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a, so it's a very good um, kind of like a nucleation crystal and a very good, as I said, proof of concept to show that this is indeed possible. But we need to do, we need to expand a lot more. And there, are, the good thing, there are cases where we can apply um, organoids for many other indications. Cancer is a very obvious one, right? Because there's a lot of need. These are often terminal patients. So there is more space to to explore. And what's the, from your point of view, like the long-term vision? Is it to grow like parts of certain organs to create some grafts or alleviate, you know, the, the shortages of certain organ donation? Or, like, or this is like maybe just science fiction and you're going to bring me back down on earth and say, no, no, that's not the way it's going. It's, it's not science fiction at all, actually. I think it's a really interesting application. Um, I mean, cell-based therapies work, right? And if you think about bone marrow transplants, this is yeah. a cell-based therapy. And you can consider the bone marrow an organ, and you can consider bone mm -hmm. marrow transplant an organoid transplant. Why not? It's just that it hasn't been manipulated that much in vitro in order to, potential, to, to consider it maybe a classical organoid. So I think, I, I think the, the, the use case is absolutely there. Uh, the interest is there. Uh, Roche doesn't currently have a big um, cell cell therapy or transplantation yep. generative medicine interest, which doesn't mean that it might not happen, right? Um, before that, so I think in theory it's a very good application. Before this becomes a reality, I think we need to iron out a few again technical and biological wrinkles in the organoid production process or the maturation process. For example, we still use components derived from animals to grow organoids yep. you know when it comes to the matrix when it comes to the medium and they suffer the risk of immunogen or pathogen transfer into humans so that needs to be solved yeah we need to make sure that you know we don't cause more harm than good by by implanting something which is not up to up to standards we need to implement good manufacturing practices but I do think that all of these problems are solvable. So I think we're going to get there fairly soon. Yeah. And you, you mentioned, uh, or maybe you haven't mentioned, but uh, there is also another type of technology which sounds a bit similar to organoids, this organ on a chip technology, mm -hmm. which it, it is more about imitating a function than recreating, you know, the, the whole phenotype, as you mentioned. Yes. Can you can you tell us like what the differences are and how they complement each other, if they complement each other? Yes, and, and I'm glad you said complement each other at the end because they absolutely do. I, I think sometimes people like to either put them on indirect opposition, so yeah. either or, or they sometimes even put them in a, they stack them in a hierarchy, you know, to say organs on a chip are more complex or organoids are more complex. It actually really depends, and it depends on what aspect. So organ on chip is simply a technology that introduces uh, some physiological feature, typically physical feature, mm -hmm. and most typically flow, 
right? Yeah. Most, if we, if we, there can be many things, but but the you know, overwhelming majority of organ on a chip, they have, they are microfluidic devices that contain cells and permit flow. They often even mimic the vasculature flow. So that's very important because on one hand, it allows you to recapitulate important physiological parameters, mm-hmm. again, like flow, perfusion, you know, what, what, what is delivered from the vasculature. But it also allows you to, um, to monitor your, your construct, what you have built, to be able to you know, deliver drugs, to take them out, to incorporate readouts. So mm-hmm. it's, it's not just about recapitulating the most um, relevant physiological parameters, but also having more control and more um, and, and and ways to uh, to to monitor right your 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 model tissue. Now, where organs on a chip typically have suffered in the past is the the cellular and biological complexity because they're they're either constructed from cell lines, or even if they're constructed for, from primary uh, cell types. It's often just a monolayer on a, on a semipermeable yeah. membrane, so this is quite simple. Where when when org, where organoids, they typically lack these microphysiological aspects: the flow, sensors, you know, chips, peristalsis, mechanical stimulation. Yeah. However, they make up for that, or maybe makeup is not maybe the the right word, but what they do have is this. Uh, biological complexity, the cellular yeah. diversity, the architecture, the 3D aspects. And more and more researchers are interested in merging these two concepts into the next generation technology, which would be called, I guess, organoid on a chip. <laughs> and uh, I, again, this is readily doable because there is no technical or biological reasons why you cannot have both, why you cannot have organoids with high cellular and architectural complexity and physiological fidelity, but also have flow and built-in sensors and mechanical sti- and electrochemical stimulation. So this is all possible and in, and in fact is the way to go. And this is the direction that the field is headed for sure. There's um, another um, topic around tissue engineering <coughs> that I came across when I when I was preparing the episode that, that is related to bioprinting. Um, so like companies you're yes. probably familiar with like Cell Inc who are, you know, designing like literally 3D printers with specific bio inks in which tissue can grow and they're able to yeah. reconstruct like an ear, for example. Um, yes. Do you see like synergies there as well with uh, the technologies we talked about? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think when it comes to building better tissue and organ replicas, you have to pay attention to, well, having the right s- s- building blocks. You're building something, right? And let's imagine you're building a house. The first thing you need to do is to have the right building blocks. And, you know, we get primary tissues, we get primary patient samples, and we get the right building blocks. The, you know, the parenchymal cells themselves, let's say the cancer cells, but you also need stromal cells, fibroblasts, immune cells, because they all together constitute an organ. It's not just the parenchymal cells. They're just the parenchyma. But when you're building a house, you also need to put the building blocks in the correct patterns. You cannot yeah. just throw them together randomly. And I think this is where either microengineering strategies, microfabrication strategies, or bioprinting strategies can really help. 
to take the right components and build them up in the right spatial and even temporal patterns, right? Um, again, in bioprinting, uh, we need to be careful about some technical biological obstacles that need to be overcome. The bioinks, for example, are typically not compatible with a lot of primary cells. Yeah. So we need to find, and people are absolutely working on on finding better and more biocompatible mm-hmm. inks for that are that are ideally tailored to the cell type you're interested in. Yeah. Usually, it's not one type fits all. It usually never is in biology, yeah. right? <laughs> but I, yeah, this is a field that is rapidly developing, and I also have lots of hope there. We again, I having been in the build in the field for for some time. I try to be cognizant of things which sensationalize the field, like you know, a bioprinted ear. That's just the shape of an ear, and yeah. that's probably just polymer yeah. that might be covered in some cells, but it's certainly not an ear. You know, something that looks like, yeah. <laughs> like an ear. When you see the picture, it's ear. amazing. But but but, but it's it's uh, it's a pitfall that the field likes to fall in for for creating interest and excitement and it's a fine line actually because i understand the engagement and uh, the excitement aspects of communication Mm -hmm. but it's important to not overshoot it right yeah yeah for sure sure. and so you've been in in this field um i mean organoid technology for quite a while um how how old is that feel like how and what are the (laughs) the main advances that you witnessed since you you started being involved there yeah that's a good question and it's a bit of a complex question because it's um yeah it's hard to answer without going into a little bit of the semantics you know Mm -hmm. um if we think about what organoids are they are essentially a piece of or a large part of them they're they're a piece of human tissue which has been grown in three-dimensional culture in vitro yeah so we've started to use uh, the term organoid at a very you know, high level and, and very pervasively after uh, Hans Cleaver's 2009 paper on intestinal organoids. Mm-hmm. So Hans definitely popularized the concept, took them to another level, uh, probably reported the most physiologically complete and intri- architecturally complete organoid. Yeah. And... Uh, and then a whole bunch of other organoid types and also demonstrated translational applications. So he must be credited for that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, he, I, I consider Hans and, and it's just a fact. It's not, it's not just for me to consider him, but he's the father of the field. Yeah. However, people have been culturing primary, primary human cells and primary pieces of human tissue in three-dimensional culture resulting in organotypic structures. So something that resembles tissue and organ architecture, function, physiology, way earlier, starting from even the 60s. You know, I believe some of them even use the word organoid. One that comes to mind is Mina Bissell with her with fragments of the mammary gland, which proceed to form a tree, to form this yeah. tree-like structure that resembles the branched mammary gland, the branched gland, the, the, you know, this branched organ. Yeah. And uh, this was also done in Matrigel. It was done in, in, the, in the presence of these physiological trigger like you know egf epidermal growth factor so the field has been around for quite some time absolutely and sorry your second question the second was what what are the main advances you witnessed like being involved in when since you started being involved there 
Yeah, that's uh, that's 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 really that's really cool. I'm I'm thinking on the fly. What would be the 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 biggest um, advances? I I think the fact that we were able to demonstrate patient concordance or individual concordance, the fact that individual aspects can yeah. be recapitulated with organoids faithfully and preserved and kind of also leveraged therapeutically, like in the case of cystic fibrosis modeling, yeah. that has been critical. That didn't exist before the past decade. So that has yeah. been demonstrated over the past decade. The, the, the fact that organoids can be and are the most promising platforms for for personalized medicine. That's that you know that happened. Then um, I would say more recently, and this is work that has come from my post from my postdoc lab from the lab of Matthias Lutov, is that org we should not also revere the kind of the um, this conventional uh, original state. And, and format of organoids, which is kind of a ball of cells in a three-dimensional matrix that fully self-organizes, right? If we think about how tissues and organs form, there is self-organization. They rely on these inherent prescripted self-organization programs. Yeah. But they also unfold in some sort of a three-dimensional context. There's also exogenous signals that control them. So we thought, well, okay, why not supplement these organoids and their self-organization program with some extrinsic control to make them better, to mm -hmm. make them more faithful to um, to their parental counterparts, yeah. right? So this way, instead of having a closed sphere as an intestinal organoids, we have created a tube, yeah. something that actually matches the shape and the function and even the cellular organization and composition of the native organoids better. So that would be another major advance. The fact that we supplemented biology with engineering to ultimately enhanced physiological likeness and physiological function. And an, an aspect I thought about as well um, was regarding the, the ethical framework, if you know this goes in the direction where you um, mm. we would be using organoids uh, like instead of animal models, um, like what's your thinking there? Is there, I mean, probably it's too early and it does, yeah. doesn't have much of an importance yet, but in, in the future, what could it look like or how could it change things? Yeah, Matthew, you're asking all the hard questions. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> you're a specialist, so you should be able to, to <laughs> This is very relevant and it's something that we think about a lot because on one hand, the ethic, how we get these samples in order to form the structures, they are... Um, they're subject to this ethical approval and ethical release form by the patient. So the patient agrees that his or her samples can be used to for, for, for research, right? Yeah. And there's an interesting kind of ethical but also psychological concept where uh, I was I was speaking with my friends from from Sun Bioscience, a fascinating small company actually that you should look look into. They're looking into organoids and how um, and to improve the robustness and the reproducibility and the throughput. But with their interactions with doctors, <clears throat> they've told me that often patients, when it comes to disease tissue, especially cancer, you know, like a cancerous tumor tissue, once they remove it from them, they don't consider it their own. So they're completely fine, you know, releasing yeah. it. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's something that is not, you know, right? It's, it's disease, so it's something that you don't want. Yeah, that's So interesting. it's just yeah. psychologically, it's much easier for them to release it. When it comes to healthy samples, it's a bit more tricky. 
but I have to say the the access to sample and the and the ethical uh, release, the the ethical agreements have been pretty straightforward, and this has worked very well. Now we have to consider that in the future, they, uh, organoids can be treated almost like a cell line, and you're probably familiar with the HeLa story. You know, this was a patient. This 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 is a famous cancer cell line yeah, that is that has proliferated all over the world. But it but that was never actually there was no ethical approval. Uh, so the, the, this the patient never agreed to to yeah. her cells mm-hmm. being used in research. In today, that is no longer the case. So we always have ethical approval, but we need to be able in the case that this ap- approval gets withdrawn for some reason, we must destroy all samples that were derived from this, you know, all organoids or all derivatives that originated from this initial sample. In order to be able to do that, we need to track very, very well every single organoid that has been created and used because, uh, I mean, these are are stem cell fields, so you can divide them, you can expand them, you you can propagate them, you can send them to different places and use them for different um applications. So that's why as the field develops, I think it's very important for um, data management yep. um, uh, capabilities and and just awareness to develop. You know, th- this is a, a very well-refined and very professional pipeline that we are still working on. Yep. Bec- and, and that, I think the academic labs were probably not paying too much attention to that, you know. Yeah, and things often slip through the cracks, and uh, that that cannot happen in the future if we want to use them in a serious and translational way that is also responsible. So, so that links actually to uh, to another question I had. Like, um, you you were before, and uh, you spent a lot of your career working in an academic setting. Now you are in the industry in one of the leading players. Um, how how does that change? You know, your your daily work. The Sort of the mm-hmm. practice of science. Like, what are what are the big differences you've you've noticed so far? Yeah, uh, large to to a large extent, you are cognizant of the applications and what that entails. So, uh, your product is no longer science and publications. Let's be frank. You know, the academic setting, your yeah. product is publications. And there, usually proof of concept is enough, a fascinating biological finding and the mechanism behind, that is enough. Whereas when you think about translating that, that is not enough. You need to make sure that that happens not just 20% of the time, because then you don't have a viable you know, translational strategy. Mm-hmm. So you need to make sure it's robust, that it's standardized, that is um, deployable at a reasonable scale, that not just that aspect of biology is, is you know recapitulated that allows you to give a publication, but actually something that would be relevant in the clinical setting. Maybe you need other aspects of the biology to be recapitulated at the same time. So I would say you do need to think about more parameters than in basic research. It might be that you you then the trade-off is you might think about each of them more superficially. The, the advantage or the facilitating circumstance is that for a lot of them, you can say, good enough. We need all of these, but we need them to be at a good enough level so yeah. we can proceed. Whereas in academic research, 
you often really need to go down to the ground to the details so where good enough is not good enough yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> uh but at the same so it's 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 uh, yeah it's, it sounds a bit tired but it, i think it is true it's probably about breadth versus depth mm-hmm. yeah and so that translates into interactions you have with other r&d functions with regulatory functions um yeah absolutely yeah you cannot in order to to make uh, to uh, transform organoids into not just a product but also a drug development platform you cannot do that in isolation you know because it's you simply need um too much uh, too many types of expertise to make it happen um that not one that one a department or function can simply cannot have and if maybe on a more general um level i mean i i do know some of the i do have friends working in academia and you know some are wondering uh how they could potentially make the jump from you know the academic world to the industrial world as you as you've done it do you have any like applicable like advices or tips you would suggest I think probably a kind of a one <laughs> one centralized advice, one size fits all advice doesn't just doesn't work or doesn't yeah. exist. Uh, however, something that was always driving me um, with bioengineering background <laughs> was the biological problem at hand rather than the technology. So I I, I was in a bioengineering, well actually a chemical engineering department in my PhD, and I think my approach to science and research has largely been um, been developed there under the guidance of Celeste Nelson, a fantastic uh, you know biologist and engineer at at Princeton University. So she always taught us to not build the technology and then search for applications. Yeah, and I think to a large extent that's what bioengineers do. <laughs> I, I I call it you know there's this. Um, um, there's this concept or group in the U.S. called uh, "actors in a search of a director." So I call this technology in search of an application. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think the that's it. It kind of works sometimes. Sometimes you strike gold, but I'm I'm more of a fan of building a technology that solves an urgent and difficult to address gap with conventional approaches. And that's usually a you know if you build something that that's also a gap that's that's. Yeah. That's a very easy way to get enter the field. Yeah, I think I think we did we covered quite a lot. You you took us through what organoids were, how they are applicable, what would be the you know the the potential applications in a clinical setting, and why they are so relevant today in in the drug discovery process and in the in personalized medicine. Um, at the end of the episode, um, and we're slightly coming to the end of it, um, I do ask three recurring questions to every guest. Um, so the first one I have for you is, um, could you share with us an anecdote from your adventure here at Roche or before when you were still in academia, which made you you know, realize the impact you are having on medical research uh, mm-hmm. and which really stuck in your mind? Uh, yeah, I can think of something. So you you may or may, may not know that we've worked fairly closely with Hans Cleavers uh, during my postdoc. We collaborated on on publications. We actually have some also some papers together, and we all know that Hans is the father of the organoid field and also our current head, the, the yeah. head of pharma research and, and early development. So when we started ITB, 
um, I have a talented intern who was about to become a PhD student. And since Roche is not a PhD granting institution, we had to look for an academic advisor for him. So this was before, uh, this was when Hans, you know, was just still running his academic lab. So in, in fact, a few, a few months ago. Yeah. So just having the, the link and the, um, uh, the collaboration background with, with Hans, I wrote to him, reached out to him, uh, asking him if he wants to be the academic mentor to, to, my, to, my, uh, inter, uh, to my intern, Marius. And he said, uh, just give me a few days to answer that question. And I waited for one week, and that came the announcement that he's becoming our P Red Head. So that explained why he couldn't give me a, <laughs> a direct answer. <laughs> yes. And needless to say, that fell through because, well, I think yeah. he has probably more important things to think about, or even he doesn't have capacity to be uh, the PhD mentor of individual students at Roche. He might, I'm not sure if he, if he was even uh, administratively able to do that. So that was it. Yeah, and that's. I think it. I mean, from seeing seen from the outside, it's also a big uh, um, statement that Absolutely. now Hans is leading the Pirate yeah. organization. Um, yeah, that's yes. that's amazing. Absolutely, it is a stamp of approval to be sure. It is you know a, a, some some validation for me that the field that I've essentially dedicated my career to is um, is something that could make an impact. <laughs> for sure. So which easily accessible resource would you recommend to our listeners so that they can further ex further explore the field in which you, you evolve? That's interesting. I think it depends a little bit on the profile of your listeners and what they're actually looking for. If, if they want a good set of you know introductory material to mm -hmm. learn about organoids without maybe getting too much into the scientific or technical details... I think the Harvard Stem Cell Institute has some in their website. Okay. Mm -hmm. And actually some of the small companies that sell organoid products, like Stem Cell Technologies is the one that comes to mind. Okay. They have a very nice suite of um, of materials that communication information materials that relate to organoids. So that would be a good starting point. Interestingly, I, I've done a, you know, I did a I did a search recently. I don't think organoids have appeared too much in um, in just normal mass media uh, a little bit but it's been a little bit isolated so but i I'm, I'm pretty sure this is about to change yeah yeah that's why we're doing the podcast oh there we go <laughs> <laughs> yeah great and i'll try to put the link in the description from the resources you, you mentioned um and the last question would be which person would you recommend as a potential guest for the podcast and and why from the roche ecosystem not necessarily hmm okay Uh, I, I mentioned my friends from friends and colleagues from Sun Bioscience who are running a fantastic small company that pertains to again democratizing and scaling um, organoid organoid technology and um, translating it into into drug development and clinical practice. Yeah. Their names are uh, Natalie Baldenberg and mm -hmm. Silke Hunel. They are also your former colleagues from EPFL. Yeah, exactly. So they would be they would be fantastic. And um, Matthias Lutolf and Hans Klevers would be <laughs> <laughs> would be good ones especially because I think they're kind of emblematic of this current trend there's there I say of high profile academics jumping into um, the private sector yeah. into more translational applications. Aviv Regev The, the head of GRED is another one. Mm -hmm. 
And I, I, I truly, truly believe that this is not driven by, you know, career ambitious or anything like that. I think they really have an interest and commitment to taking these technologies, you know, biological concepts that they have championed in their mm -hmm. academic labs and making sure, seeing through that they reach the clinics, that yeah. they reach patients. And I think that's pretty awesome. Yeah. How do we get in contact with you? By email, over LinkedIn? Uh, yeah, yes. <laughs> I think email, LinkedIn is, is, is good. Um, chat, if you're in the, in the <laughs> Roche ecosystem. I have to say I'm not really good with social media. So LinkedIn, my messages, I probably have something like 50 piled up, <laughs> but eventually I get to them. Yeah. All right. Is there anything else you, you would like to, to add? Um, no, just thank you for, for this really nice chat and thanks for making sure that that scientific and technological developments that, that are part of this field are now also accompanied with communication and, um, you know, sharing of information, which is, which is as important in order for, you know, for this to work. Oh, that's great. And thank you very much for, for taking the time, Nikos. It was a great conversation. Thanks a lot. For me too. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. All the notes are available in the episode description. Don't hesitate to share it with your relatives, friends or colleagues and subscribe to the podcast. Also, I would be really grateful if you could leave a positive evaluation on Apple Podcasts. It really helps Impulse move up in the rankings. Feel free also to reach out to me by email or through LinkedIn if you want to share your feedback, questions, or suggest potential guests. Thanks, and see you in the next one.